The best way to have one's project fail is to not plan. In this series, a lesson from Nehemiah, how to complete a project, plan, or idea successfully, we'll look at what Nehemiah did for his project and how we can apply similar principles to our own endeavors. Let's jump in. So I'm not going to review everything from that last lesson. And as I promised you, when the teaching is over, I'm going to pass out the entire message, written script of that message so you can have it. And at the end of it, we'll summarize, you know, like one, two, three, ABC, the model that I'm talking about so you'll have it in your hands because I think it's a real practical and useful model. Uh, in that lesson on the 25th, we spent time discussing the Jewish history that led up to the story of Nehemiah. And remember, it was a history that involved the Babylonian captivity or Babylonian exile. This captivity or exile began in 597 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylonia laid siege to Jerusalem, looting and destroying much of the city. He destroyed the, the temple, which was so important, and took almost all the people away with him captive to Babylon. He left only the poorest people behind. Now, one of the things that drew my interest to, to uh, Nehemiah was the fact that in this book, we see the intersection of biblical narrative and actual recorded history. You don't always get that overlay or inter interlay or interplay. But in this case, you do. Now, the Bible rarely gives specific dates. It doesn't say, because it's not a history book as such in that sense. It, it won't say that in, uh, in 539 BC, for example, the king of, of uh, Persia defeated the Babylonians and took over Babylon. And, uh, and, the, and the Jews who had been taken off captive were now under, and there were several generations of them by this time, were now under the uh, uh, control of the Persians. They, they will indicate that it happened, but they won't say when. But these are actual dates. So when you do a study of the history, you can find out the actual dates. Uh, we know, for example, that, uh, that uh, again, as I said, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Babylonia in, uh, I mean, conquered uh, Judah in uh, 59. 597 BC or BCE. Now, who remembers what BCE stands for? What is that? That's right. BCE stands for Before Common Elements. It's what we call BC. There's a, a movement among scholars, historical, I mean, history scholars, to change the BC to BCE. They say it's a more politically correct usage than B.C. and A.D. So they're trying to replace everything, and they have, as a matter of fact, a lot of uh, history accounts to B.C.E. and C.E. C.E. would be what? Common era. Common era. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and they, I don't want to digress on this too much, but they say that even B.C. and A.D. don't line up because, because uh, according to, to B.C. Uh, doctrine, Jesus started his ministry at age 30. 
but he actually started his ministry at least six or seven years before that time. So, uh, uh, so we're off by those six or seven years. But anyway, we won't, we won't get lost in that. You can get lost in, especially when you start comparing the Jewish calendar with our so-called calendar and so on. I'm gonna make a, a reference to that later. But anyway, we know that, uh, for example, uh, uh, that, uh, as I said, uh, the Persian king defeated the Babylonians in 539 and took over the area called Babylonia. And now the Jewish captives, already descendants of those captives, were now under Persian uh, control. That was 539, and that was King Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus was more kindly uh, toward the Jews, and a year later, in 538, he issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem, and some started making their way back to Jerusalem. We know that in 458, you don't have to write all these dates down because I'm going to give this to you later. 458, uh, uh, Ezra led a mission of Jews back to Jerusalem, and they began the effort to rebuild the temple. They were not completely successful, and I think only the foundation was completed. And we know that the person we're talking about tonight, Nehemiah, in 444 BC, made his return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. These are actual, these are actual dates. Now it's interesting, and I think I may have mentioned this uh, last time, that the Persian king was more kindly towards the Jews, and uh, and under the Persians, the Jews were able to rise in governmental positions and other positions of prominence in the, in the empire. And I asked last time, Persia, what modern day country uh, was, was Persia? Hmm? I hear Iraq and Iran. Which one? You're saying Iran? Okay, you're right, Iran. Yeah, so you're all right. Iran, the, the Iranians are really Persians, as you know. So, and it's interesting that they treated the Jews with much more kindness. And, and it's interesting because you look at the treatment of the Iranians today, and the Jew, they're saying that that the Jewish state should be wiped off the face of the earth, that they don't have, have a reason to exist. So that's just an interesting uh, side point. Getting back to Nehemiah, Nehemiah was one of the Jews living in Persia whose parents, and actually really grandparents, no doubt, or even going back further, uh, were the ones who were taken into captivity. He most likely was born in Persia himself, because when you look at the dates, since you have the dates, uh, it's almost 100 years, so obviously he wasn't taken into captivity. He would be 100 and some years old and so forth. So he was uh, uh, undoubtedly born there. Somehow he rose to a position of prominence in the service of the king. And in many ways, he reminds us of David. He's kind of a counterpart of David, uh, who rose to prominence also under the Persian king Darius and became one of the governors in Persia. And you, you remember the plot against him? The king liked him so well that uh, he 
thought of putting Daniel over the entire realm, over all the governors and all of what they call the satraps. These were the administrators of the different regions in Persia. And that's when the other Persians start plotting against Daniel and he ended up being thrown into the lion's den. But what characteristic of Daniel uh, that is interesting, and I, and I think it was a characteristic of, of Nehemiah also, and it's found in Daniel chapter 6, verse 3. And it's recorded as follows. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps uh, because of an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. And it's my opinion that Nehemiah exhibited the same excellent spirit. It doesn't say that, but I think he did because he rose to achieve a high-ranking palace position as cupbearer to the king. And that king's name was listed as Artaxerxes. And I don't want to further confuse you, but I'm not sure we know what the king's real name was. See, Artaxerxes is not the name of a king, even though the Bible refers to him as King Artaxerxes and some historians. Artaxerxes actually means the great king. It's not king like King Darius. So, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we're not really sure. And I've read a lot of different things, and some think it was this one. Some are not even sure it wasn't Darius himself or whatnot. But anyway, we don't need to get lost in that. So the position of cupbearer was extremely important because what did the cupbearer do? Well, he served the wine, but he, but he normally tasted the wine to make sure it was important. And one of the other functions was actually to taste food to the person who had that position, would taste the food uh, before having it served to the king to make sure that it wasn't uh, poison. So in other words, he was in a highly trusted position. In our last session, I gave you a bit of history of the Babylonian captivity and showed you how it had been prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. And that's in uh, Jeremiah chapter 28. And you'll see some reference to it in verses 10 through 14 in Jeremiah uh, 29. Did I say 28? It's Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 4. You just marked it down. You don't have to go to it. And as Jeremiah had prophesied, the captivity resulted from the Jews departing from the word and the commandments of God and drifting into idol worship and other acts of, of disobedience to God. And in that uh, prophecy, uh, he states that that captivity would last 70 years. And we know from history that it lasted exactly seven years before uh, any were able to return to Jerusalem. So you can find my brief discussion of this in the previous lesson. Uh, now, by way of a quick review, last time we examined the first chapter of Nehemiah, verse by verse. We won't do that again tonight. But in this first chapter, we learn the following. First, Nehemiah had become very sad when he learned of the plight of the Jews and the state of disrepair. Judah, Jerusalem, the temple, and to him, most importantly, the wall of Jerusalem was in total disrepair. And this, now this is someone who, had, as far as we know, had never been to Jerusalem. But he recognized that the wall was so important. Why was the wall so important? Because this was the security and protection of the people. 
And so if the wall is down, that means you're open for attack by surrounding enemies, and they did have enemies. They, all, anybody with the name of Ait at the end of the name, they were an enemy of the Jews. You know, the Amorites, the, 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 the Hittites, uh, every, every Ait that you can think of, they were the, the Zebi, yep, exactly, and, uh, and a few other Ites. And these were the people who lived in the surrounding territories to uh, Judah and Jerusalem. So the wall was very important. So as I said, he became very sad. What happened is that, as, as, you, as you know, see if I digress, we, we'll never get through this. But anyway, as you know, some of the captives who had gone back to Jerusalem came back, and they were reporting on the conditions there. They said, it's really awful. I mean, we're the laughing stock in the region. We don't seem to be able to get anything going, and so on. So uh, again, uh, they reported that the wall was totally destroyed, that the temple was only incompletely rebuilt, uh, and that there was low morale among the people, and that they were, in fact, a laughing stock in the region. And I pointed out here that this is the point where Nehemiah got his firsthand information about the plight in Jerusalem. In other words, his formulation in his heart of a desire to rebuild the wall was based on this information that he learned that the wall was in total disrepair and so on. So whenever you're going to formulate anything, you've got to base it on facts. So these, this was the first set of facts. Uh, secondly, Nehemiah expressed great grief and, ex and consternation about the problem. And he expresses his concern. Third, uh, Nehemiah established a prescribed period of fasting and prayer, and that's all in, in my notes uh, last time, where he prayed twice a day. And this also reminded me of Daniel, who prayed each day. Uh, and uh, what's interesting here is that, uh, like Daniel, Nehemiah always began his prayer, and it's in the description of the prayer. That's Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. He began his prayer with praise and worship uh, to God. And he confesses the sins of the children of Israel and adds that both my father's house and I sinned. So he confesses. Uh, so he expresses concern and he confesses. Fourth, Nehemiah ends the chapter, that's chapter 1, verse 11, by asking God to intercede on his behalf and ask God to let him prosper, he says, this day uh, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, it states. Now, this man, he was referring to the king, the person he served, and he wanted favor in front of the king because he was going to ask the king for help. So he made a personal commitment in his heart that he would undertake the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem. I don't mean by himself, but he would do and marshal the resources and so forth to do this. And to do this, he knew that he would need the help in favor of the king, which he intended to ask, quote, this day. So that's why he prayed to God for favor and in the sight of this man, the king. So here, I thought it was interesting. There was concern, confession, and commitment. And I said, that links him to Crenshaw Christian Center. We are three C's. 
And those are three C's. So that's our connection to Nehemiah. Now, as some of you know, because of his efforts at rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah is called Nehemiah the Builder. And his inspiring story lives today in our city. Where? In Brooklyn. That's right. In the, re in the rebuilding activity that, that took place in Brooklyn, in a housing development called Nehemiah Spring Houses. This is in East New York, off of Flatlands Avenue. A beautiful development that started some years ago. Should be completed this year. When completed, it will be about 1,600 new townhouses. And it's allowing for first-time owners to get ownership access by way of a lottery. Some people put their names in the lottery five years ago, some 17 years ago, and, and so forth. So the first numbers are already there. More have moved in. But if you go by that, that, that area, the, these, uh, these townhouses are beautiful. And it's a total development. Supermarket, there's a, there's a complex there. There's a, uh, an EMS uh, you know, emergency uh, service unit uh, station there. There are two, at least two, maybe three schools, new schools that are there. There are two parks, at least two parks there. It's a beautiful, beautiful area. But this was all inspired, uh, the people say, by Nehemiah, who expressed such great hope in the face of the total despair that existed in, in, uh, in Jerusalem when he went back to rebuild the walls. Now, the Nehemiah housing in Brooklyn opened in 2012, although I think there may have been some early Nehemiah projects. And as I said, when completed, there should be some, and they, it's supposed to be completed this year, 1,500 new homes. Uh, now, these homes in Brooklyn were built and named after Nehemiah, who we know from what we're studying today, helped to rebuild Jerusalem uh, and uh, the Great Wall there. And as one owner of the Nehemiah, in the Nehemiah housing in Brooklyn said, with each new home, and I'm quoting, we try to embody the same spirit of hope, the same spirit of hope as Nehemiah in the face of despair. And so this is just a little footnote to show you how the story in the Bible more than 2,000 years ago inspired something that is contemporary today in terms of building and undertaking a major project. But important for us, the story of Nehemiah is not just about physical rebuilding. This message speaks to the need and the how to rebuild or at least fortify, in some cases, the walls of our Christian life that may be in varying states of disrepair. And it speaks to the rebuilding that may be needed with respect to walls that are in disrepair, disrepair in the church, our church. And for example, what state of disrepair do we see in our love walk? in our faith wall, in our knowledge of the word walk, wall, our health wall, our finance wall, our self-esteem wall, our acting on the word wall. Where do we need fortifying there, if not total rebuilding? And I could go on. So this model that we're talking about speaks to all of that. So let's look closer at this plan to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and see what we can learn and apply to ourselves. It's all about application. The reason I was attracted to this story is that it showed me a model that we could actually apply to what we do. 
And, it, and we can apply, in other words, we can apply it to any idea, any project, any program, or any goal that we set that we want to undertake if we apply these steps that, that he did. Uh, now, uh, let me say something about uh, studying scripture. Romans 15.4, you can mark this down, you can go to it if you want. Romans 15.4 tells us that for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So we are to learn from the scriptures what we see and study in the scriptures, and in so doing develop patience and hope. Now, I will add this, there are no idle words in the Bible. And as you know from reading the Bible yourself, the Bible usually is given to fairly terse, meaning brief descriptions of most events. Uh, it rarely gives you dates. You don't always see names. It'll say a certain woman or on a certain day or whatever and so on. No dates, no names. Uh, however, when names, dates, facts, and descriptive narrative are given, this is me telling you this, you should pay close attention to these because they are there to tell you to tell us something. They are there for our learning. So this is Bible study, so we should also help to teach you how to study the Bible. Now, as I said, the Bible is very brief as it describes things. I suppose if it went into detail about everything, it would be like an Encyclopedia Britannica. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be this book, and, and so on. Now, I'm gonna say something, and I almost hesitate saying this because it'll pique your curiosity, but I'm not gonna give you the book, the name of the book, but there is a book out that purports to fill in the gaps that it says the Bible leaves out, and so on. And I'll give you a simplistic example. Instead of saying that, like it, it might say that Jesus and his disciples departed for uh, the, the Sea of Galilee one morning, this book would, would say, and I'm making this up, I'm paraphrasing, this book would say that Jesus and the disciples got up, they took a bath, they made breakfast, they sat down and talked for a half hour. They had prayer. They went down to the stables, got the animals ready, and so forth and so on. It would purport to fill in the so-called gaps. Now, the reason I won't give, and I, 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 I shouldn't even mention it since I'm not going to give you the name of the book. I don't want you to get lost in, in, in that book. And I don't necessarily put full credence in it. I happen to have the book. But if I tell you where it came from, <laughs> and so, which I might later, uh, you'll see why. But anyway, the, 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 so because of the brevity in which the Bible lays out things, when it does give you detail, when it does give you a specific name, it has meaning. And I know when I taught the uh, discipleship training uh, lesson on healing, where it talks about not a certain woman, but a Canaanite woman. Remember this, a Canaanite woman that started following Jesus and the disciples because her daughter was severely demon-possessed and she was asking for him to help. Instead of saying a certain woman, which you see throughout the Bible, it identified a woman from Canaan. 
And the importance there was the fact that it let you know right away that she was not part of the tribe of Israel and that she was not, therefore, entitled to the so-called children's bread, which is healing. That was for the uh, the tribes of Israel and so on. So it's letting us know that that's a person who's outside of this, uh, this uh, domain. So now, we know from chapter 1, going back to Nehemiah, that he fasted and prayed day and night. And from Nehemiah 1.5, we see that Nehemiah began his prayer by worshiping, and I said earlier. Look at verse 5. Go to look at verse 5. Yeah, and you know where Nehemiah is? Nehemiah is close to... to uh, Close to, to Job? Yeah. It's, 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 it's right before Esther, and then Esther leads to Job, and Job leads to Psalms, and Psalms, and so it's there. Look at, look at uh, and I'm going to take my time because we'll get to the model, and I'm going to actually give you the model at, at the end. We won't finish this tonight because uh, I don't want, to, to me, my whole purpose is for you to get something that you can, you can use, so I'm not interested in giving you a lesson that You'll have to dig for this. You're going to actually get this in your hands and so forth. So, uh, uh, so I've already done the ducking for you. So you can, you'll have it in your hand. So uh, look at uh, uh, Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5. And, 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 and he's writing. Now remember it's Nehemiah who's narrating this whole story in Nehemiah. He's the one who's narrating this. And so he says, and I said... I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. This is the praise part before he goes into the prayer and so forth. And it's worship before the prayer. It has given us a model approach to prayer. Now, it's interesting. When you read Daniel, you see the same thing. And I'll show it to you. Look at Daniel chapter 9. Verse 4, and I'll give you a chance. I just want you to see this uh, in there. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. And that reads, And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. And that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? This is praise and worship before Daniel goes into his prayer. And Jesus also gave us a similar model, and you need to take a look at this. This is in Luke, and it's something you already know. Luke uh, chapter 11, verse 2. Let me, let me take a look. Make sure that's the right uh, place. Yeah, Luke chapter 11, verse 2. And here, it says, so he said to them, this is Jesus, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive uh, us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us, uh, and, and do not lead, lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, and so forth. So this beginning part of the prayer is, is actually worship. In other words, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, 
on earth as it is in heaven. This is actually worship. Now, you, you probably have never heard this before, but, but it is. Well, maybe you have. I don't know. But uh, it's, it's giving us a model prayer. You start your prayers by worship. Now, you're saying, well, how, how do I worship? You could say anything. You say, God, thank you this day for life and breath. Thank you this day for your word. Thank you this day for my healing. Thank you this day for uh, enabling me to have a job that enables me to pay my bills and to put a roof over my house. You can just start by that. Just, just thank you. Thank you. It doesn't have to be an elaborate uh, uh, where you intone your voice and say, oh, God, how great you are. And, and, and so on and so on. Just, you just do a practice. You're, 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 you're praising God that way. So it's giving us a model of a prayer. I just wanted to show you that. Uh, now, back to Nehemiah. The first step in the Nehemiah model uh, designed to accomplish any goal or execute any plan or carry out any idea is to start with prayer. Prayer to the Father. Through prayer uh, to the Father, you inform him of your desire. And the important thing is that you make him a partner in your project, in your plan. Very important. You couldn't have a better partner than God. Amen. And that's what you that's why it's important to inform him of what you're doing and what you would desire to get done by way of this plan. And if it's consistent with the word of God, you know, in other words, you're not asking for somebody else's wife, somebody else's land, somebody else's property and so forth, then you have made God a partner to uh, your project. Very important. And it also shows that, that uh, Nehemiah knew the reality of Psalm 127.1. Anybody know what that is offhand? Take a quick look at it. I know you know Jackie. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You probably couldn't hear Jackie, but Psalm 127.1 says, "Unless the Lord builds a house, they that build labor in vain." And, and so it's very important. Unless the Lord guards the city. The watchman stays awake in vain, and so forth. So he's letting us know that he's aware of this truth. You also remember from chapter 1, verse 11, that's the end of chapter 1, Nehemiah asked God to grant him favor, as I said earlier, in the sight of the king. So he would know the right thing to say when he addressed the king about his desire to see the wall of Jerusalem rebuilt. We see from the facts given to us in the scriptures that Nehemiah prayed, four months before he got the opportunity to speak with the king. How do we know this? We know this by the facts that Nehemiah gives and by the dates he gives. And you might say, well, I don't see any dates that he gives. But when you look closely, they're there. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, where the story begins, remember it says, it came to pass in the month of uh, Kislev, which is spelled in, in our Bible, C-H-I-S-L-E-V. It's also spelled K-I-S-L-E-V, which I put in, you don't have it in your Bible, just roughly November and December in terms of our calculation. This is where he gets the news about the sad state of affairs in Jerusalem and the idea of doing something about it, such as rebuilding a wall. And this begins to take shape in his mind. We pick up the narrative today at chapter 2, verse 1. 
and, and, and go, go to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. And it states, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, N-I-S-S-A-N, there are four months between Kislev and Nisan. So you know that four months have passed. So he's been praying, fasting throughout this period, but certainly praying day and night to God during this time. And he was doing something else, too. He was formulating his plans to present to the king, and you'll see this come out later during this time. In other words, he didn't want to go half-baked and half-informed, but he wanted to be precise in what he was going to ask the king for, so he used this time uh, for that. So I asked, why are these dates given? And I say, this is me, I say, they're here to show us that Nehemiah prayed for those four months so he could be completely prayed up when he speaks with the king. Remember something I said earlier this year, he's talking about Daniel. Daniel, before he was thrown into the lion's den, had a habit of prayer. And I said that the best preparation is pre-preparation. That's not a word you're gonna find in Google or in the dictionary, it's not a word. Best preparation is pre-prayer, preparation. In other words, be prayed up. Because in the case of Daniel, if he had waited until he walked into the lion's den uh, before he started praying, he would have been eaten alive. So he was completely prayed up. And so Nehemiah used those four months to be completely prayed up, to get God completely in tune with what he wanted to do, and also to formulate clearly in his mind his plan so he could present it to the king. And later, and we'll get to that uh, hopefully tonight or Next week, he lays out a complete plan to the king, which is really amazing. Uh, so if we are not prepared, uh, then you could be in trouble. Now, Daniel was thrown to the lion. lion. I think Elder Iva and Elder Mary, who's here, and anybody who speaks before you on Thursday night or Sunday night could say that figuratively, we're thrown to the lions. You're being the lions. And if we're not prayed up and prepared, you will rip us to shreds. Especially when you leave and talk about how bad the message was and how poorly delivered it was and so forth and so on. And you will probably never let us forget it. So you have to be prayed up and prepared for any undertaking. Otherwise, you could be ripped to shreds. So. Uh, and uh, so again, I said it's a time that he used to flesh out his ideas, to give uh, shape and form to them. And it's telling us not to proceed, and certainly don't proceed to speak with someone that you're seeking help from with a half-baked plan. And so have it well thought out. So again, let's go back and look at the model. Step one in the model is seek help from the highest authority, the Father in heaven. And of course, Nehemiah did this and make God a partner in your plan or project. Step two, seek help from the highest authority on earth to whom you have access. It could be the mayor, it could be your supervisor, it might be your parents, it might be an older brother or sister, it might be someone that you know uh, in the community, but the highest person you know. 
And in this case, uh, he was in a very good position because the highest authority he had access to was the king. So he had two great authorities, both God in heaven and the king on earth. And you do this to bring in partners or supporters who can, who can provide real assistance and so on. So look at Nehemiah uh, 2, verses 1 and 3. Let's go look at, look at that. Let me find it here. I'm going to take my time because uh, the model will emerge clearly and I will outline it step by step. You won't have all of this, this dialogue and you'll be, able to, you'll be able to see it. So Nehemiah, we're looking at Nehemiah 2. It says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, which we already talked about, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before, before him. If wine was before him, then Nehemiah took it to him. Then I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Uh, verse 2, Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad? You are not sick, or since you are not sick, this is nothing but sorrow of the heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Now why would you think he, he became afraid? You're not supposed to go to, towards the king like that, right? Did you hear what Jennifer said? She has the, the right answer. You're not supposed to go to the king with a sad face. You're not supposed to do anything to make him angry. Because the kings have actually killed servants yes. who disturbed their equilibrium, who made them angry, or brought sadness in their presence. So he was in fear and trepidation by having this sad countenance. But the king read it right away and said that this is nothing but a broken heart. And so in verse 3, and the king says, Oh, and, uh, no. No, I'm sorry. He says, and, he's, and this is, he's talking about himself. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? And then the king uttered the magic words in number four. And the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. In verse 5, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may, that I may, rebuild, that I may rebuild it. And now this is interesting here, the choice of language. He says, he asked the king to send him to Judah. Now this is very important. And it's very important that when we're formulating requests that we're very precise and we ask it in the right way. He didn't ask the king, may I take leave of your service and go? Because the king might have said, fine, you can leave tomorrow. It takes more than that, you'll see later, uh, to, to make this trip. He said, send me meaning the king is going to undertake something to make this happen. Very important. The choice of language is very important. Uh, I see we will be back here next week. So again, there's a difference between asking to go somewhere 
and asking to be sent somewhere. So he says the right thing. Now look at verse 6. And this is interesting. Then the king said to me, and in parenthesis it says, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I set a time. Now you notice here that no dates or times are given because they're not really considered important to the biblical narrative with the story that's taking place. And also note that it says the queen was sitting beside the king, and it puts that in parenthesis. This is important because we don't know who that queen was. So I looked into this, and many historians, and when I say many, let me say, put it this way, some historians of Bible scholars think that this queen might have been Queen Esther. Very interesting. Because remember, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther really run together. And Ezra and Nehemiah, as I pointed out last time, is really one book. It's one book in the Jewish Bible. Uh, and they have a sequence backwards in, in our Bible. Uh, it has Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. It's really Esther, uh, uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah. It should be that way in terms of the sequence of events and so on. And when you see the sequence of, of events historically, you can see that. But anyway, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't disturb the, the biblical narrative and so forth. Uh, so, the two additional points I want to make here. One is Nehemiah did not hesitate to use his connection because after all he was a cupbearer to the king. The thing for us to further note here is that it pays to have an excellent spirit in your work and in the job where you establish a good image uh, before those who are above you in position. In other words, do your best in whatever job or position you have, and God will aid in getting you the increase. Amen. Second point, Nehemiah did not hesitate to ask for what he needed. Remember James uh, chapter 4, verse 2, you have not because you ask not. And Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. You have to do something. So, so Nehemiah didn't hesitate uh, to ask. And also, if you're going to ask for help, ask for it. In other words, if you need $1,000 to get something done, don't say, well, can you give me $50 on this project? No, ask for what you want. Wait till you see the things that Nehemiah asked for. <laughs> uh, and you'll see, starting in verse 7, you, you, you got it right there before you, 2, 7, verse 2 and 7. He asked and got the king to give him letters of safe passage to be shown to the governors of the regions beyond the river. That was the river that separated the kingdom from other areas to let him pass through till he reached Judea, uh, Judah. He had to pass through a lot of areas. So he asked the king to give him a letter to show to the governors as he passed through to give him safe passage. Uh, he also asked in in verse 8, the next verse, you can read it right there yourself. He asked for timber, wood, lumber from the king's forest to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertain to the temple. He asked for beams for the city wall and for the house that he would occupy once he moved to Jerusalem. 
And Nehemiah adds, and these are his words, and the king granted them to me according to the good hand of God upon me. So God is for us. Who can be against us? See, he made sure he had God with him. And the king recognized this on him. So he got really everything he asked for. He also got the king to give him a military escort. Captain, you see, you see there, this is in verse 9. Captains of the guard and horsemen to protect him as he traveled through the various regions on the way to Judah. So step three, you must be prepared for enemies to surface when you are on a godly mission. And you have to know at this point that no weapons formed against you will prosper. Once you step out on the word of God, and the godly mission may be your own salvation, it may be some spiritual project that you're working on, it may be some project in, in the world of work, but related to you, and you being a blood-bought child of God, God, it's godly work. You're going to expect the enemies to come out, and they will. So you've got to be prepared uh, for that. And so, uh, I see we're just about out of time. Uh, let me just mention step four. Nehemiah, this is very important. Nehemiah kept his mission, his plan of goal, a secret until he was ready to reveal it full blown. This is so important because most of us talk too much. <laughs> when you have an idea or plan, yes. like I'm going to invent this gadget, or I'm inventing this gadget, or I'm going to write this book, or I'm going to undertake this and that, most people open their mouth and tell family, friends, co-workers, people that they meet, and so forth. And what happens is that all of a sudden, opposition can be lined up against your plan. Because not everybody that you know is for you and for your success. So you need to keep your, says time is over, you need to keep your idea and plan to yourself and reveal it only to the few people that you need to help launch it until you're ready to reveal it on the open plane. Very important. Very important. So this is step four. We'll cover the other steps and we'll meet next Thursday and continue this. Uh, very interesting topic. Has absolute application to our life today. Thanks for listening. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 945 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Or join us for Bible study on Thursday evenings at our fellowship office, 470 7th Avenue on the 6th floor, right in Herald Square. Thanks again for listening. And remember, walk by faith, not by sight.